0: science and Technology time at 846 today the search for alien life uh, closer to home as well NASA's plan for a mission to Jupiter's moon Europa and is human gene editing inevitable Mark Zastro is on the line traveling back from the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of science held last week in Boston thank you very much for joining us
1: great to be here Alex
0: I'm um, uh, There's been big news then after that press conference last Wednesday. NASA and European astronomers announcing the discovery of seven new exoplanets in a system called TRAPPIST-1.
1: That's right. The system was discovered by NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope and it is only 40 light-years away, which is you know pretty close in galactic terms. And it's kind of like a mini version of our own inner solar system. So all of these planets are about the size of Earth, uh, and they're rocky, so they're not gas giants like Jupiter or Saturn. And, of course, the exciting thing is that of these seven planets, three of them are in the so-called habitable zone, or the Goldilocks zone, where the temperature should be just right to support liquid water. And that means there could be life.
0: Yeah, um, obviously that is exciting, but we have been hearing for years about possible Habitable exoplanets. Why the big fuss now?
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, we already know, as you say, of about a few dozen planets that are like these three planets in Trappist One. That they're they're rocky, like Earth, and they're also in the habitable zone. But what makes Trappist One special is that, by pure chance, the orientation of the orbits of the orbits happen to be on edge to us. And that actually makes them much easier to study. So, you know, if you can picture in your mind a solar system with all the planets orbiting in the same plane, you know, like a a flat disk, Mm. we're just looking right down the edge of the TRAPPIST-1 system. And you might think, well, then we can only see the planets going back and forth. It might seem like it's harder to study. But the unique thing is that, from our perspective, we actually get to see the planets cross in front of the star. So we get to see, essentially, the shadow that the planets make. And... It's kind of like observation by subtraction. You look at the light of the star when there are no planets blocking the light, and then you look at the light of the star when the planet is blocking some light. And you can calculate what light the planet is blocking, including the light that is being blocked by the atmosphere that surrounds the planet. That's the crucial part. That thin layer of air around the planet, it's also absorbing some of the starlight. And so by looking at what colors The atmosphere is absorbing you can tell what chemicals are there so that could include things like oxygen carbon methane uh if you had all of those that would be a pretty good sign that there could be life biological activity on that planet Uh, but you can only do that if these planets are transiting if we're looking at the at the system at this exact angle so trappist 1 is now the closest star system with potentially habitable exoplanets where this kind of observation is possible
0: and how far away are we from this realization
1: well, so this uh, TRAPPIST-1 will now immediately be one of the prime targets for NASA's next-generation space telescope, which is called the James Webb Space Telescope, and it's scheduled to launch next year. And that should have the power to be able to make this observation to detect life on these planets. If it, It's kind of iffy, but we think it's, it's right on the edge of being able to do that, so that's tremendously exciting. Um, In just a few years, you know, we could be very well having another press conference where NASA is indeed telling us that James Webb has found life on TRAPPIST-1's planets. Or maybe they've done the observation and we don't find life. And either way, that's going to tell us a lot about how common life is in the universe.
0: What about life within our own solar system? You got an update on a proposed NASA mission from the conference that you were at in Boston last week.
1: That's right. So at this conference, there was a session about a mission that is currently in the planning stages at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. And that would be one of the most ambitious robotic space space missions ever. Uh, It would put a spacecraft on Jupiter's moon Europa to search for life. Now, Europa is a moon. It has an icy shell, but there's a liquid water ocean underneath it, and it could support life. And there are actually cracks in that shell where there are geysers. We've seen photos from spacecraft of water streaming out into space. So if there is an ocean down there and it's if it's teeming with microbes, some of those could be sprayed up and out onto the surface above. And so this mission would actually land on the surface ice next to these geysers and take samples of the ice and see if there are any microbes there. Uh, now, they're not building the spacecraft yet for this. They're just building prototypes and they're, they're actually doing work on frozen lakes here on Earth to try to uh, give themselves a, a dry run so to speak to figure out about, to figure out how to do this uh, but it's really exciting and it would be if it launches it would be the first time since the 1970s Uh, since the Vikings' Mars landers, that NASA will have actually launched a mission specifically designed to look for life on other worlds.
0: It's not quite the alien life of sci-fi movies, but it's got a lot of scientists excited. I don't know what your expectation is of the TRAPPIST-1 planets either, Mark. I mean, do you think there's a realistic possibility of intelligent life, for example?
1: Well, the trouble is it's going to be very difficult to know whether or not there is intelligent life from this distance or really all we can do is look for these chemical signatures just to know that there is a, a you know, a biomass down on the surface. It could be plant life. We wouldn't know if it were animal life or if it were intelligent. Um, so we're not gonna be able to know in that much detail, but simply knowing that there is biological activity happening or, or that there isn't, um, I mean, that is just in itself a huge leap forward in our understanding about yeah. how common life is.
0: It certainly is. Um, but uh, not quite as sensational as I suggested as the sci-fi depiction of such matters. Um, right. Now, finally, we've spoken many times about advances in gene editing, genetically modified plants, animals. Are we now on the cusp of genetically modified humans? Uh, that was also one of the hottest topics at the meeting in Boston.
1: Yes, that's right. It was, it was actually given uh, a particular urgency by a couple of factors just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and one of them was that Um, there was a report released by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences just uh, the week before the conference uh, opening the door to human genome editing, recommending that research proceed in this direction. And that is in large part due to the amazing advancement in gene editing uh, by the CRISPR-Cas gene editing system. We've talked about this before. And the report suggests that CRISPR and other similar techniques may very well uh, be capable of editing the human genome safely and effectively in order to treat fatal and debilitating diseases. Uh, again, as just as a last resort, um, you know, we actually talked a little while ago about CRISPR trials in cancer immunotherapy, right? And that would be, you know, modifying blood cells, not embryos or, or sperm and eggs. But that—that that is what this report is talking about: actual genetic modification of what we call the the human germline, heritable genetic traits in the DNA that make us who we are. And this could very well allow us, for example, to make healthier sperm to prevent diseases in children.
0: How far are they willing to go, even if you want to eliminate the suffering from these diseases? Do we really want to go down the road of designer babies, of making people stronger and fitter, maybe more attractive? This really is in line with some of those sci-fi movies I was referring to before.
1: Yes, it really is, and and definitely the report um, is advocating that we not go in that direction, that we only research treatments, not enhancements of humans. Uh, And, you know, I think that's something that we can probably all agree on, that we don't want to go down this line of, of enhancements. But, you know, there was a lot of discussion at this conference last week about how the line between treatment and enhancement is not that easy to define. Because, for example, when you start trying to modify genes in animal trials, in mice, that, uh, to try to prevent Alzheimer's, when you modify those genes, it also happens to improve the performance of those mice on memory tests. And that's not what the scientists were trying to do, but it happened anyways. So in trying to rescue ourselves from these illnesses, it's possible we may make these humans on average, uh, you know, a a few points higher than the mean. It's a very tricky thing.
0: How can or should the public be getting involved with these kinds of high-tech, high-science, ethical issues?
1: Yeah, that is a, a, also a huge topic at the conference, to try to get the public involved. And um, it's, it's a very tricky question also because the regulatory framework right now in most countries, if it exists, it's not set up to incorporate the public opinion. You know, The concern for these agencies is, is it safe and is it effective? And there's good reason for that, because, um, you know, th- that keeps you want to keep these decisions grounded in research and empirical data. So you don't want to be concerned about, for example, fear of vaccines, which is you know based upon fraudulent research. Uh, but there means to, there needs to be a good way, I think, for the public to contribute to this process. Um, and so that there has been a lot of criticism of the report by the National Academies that this is not addressed. It's something we're going to have to be looking at very hard.
0: Mark Zastro, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Alex. And good luck with the rest of your travels. Uh, returning to South Korea safely, Mark Astro, science journalist this morning.
1: Radio that matters. Every morning with This Morning.